to, uh, you know, going out to lunch, maybe watching a football game. Well, now football's over, so you can't look forward to that. Maybe watching the end of a golf tournament or, uh, or taking a nap. Who takes a nap on Sunday afternoon? Okay, quite a few of us, yes. I'll admit, I'm one of those. We look forward to things. We get excited about those things. What I'm asking us to consider today is, what are you looking forward to with respect to your spiritual life? What are you looking forward to with respect to your relationship with Jesus Christ? Are you anticipating anything? Are you expecting something to happen today? Are you expecting that maybe later on in the very near future, something dramatic is going to happen in your walk with Christ and you're going to experience growth and the tremendous presence of God? You see, we look forward to the things of this earth quite a bit, don't we? We look forward to our Sunday nap. I look forward to the day when my son sleeps all the way through the night. If I have bags under my eyes, you know why. We look forward to things on earth. But I'm asking the question today, what are you looking forward to with respect to your relationship with Jesus Christ? The Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter, is looking forward. He is looking toward an end result. He is anticipating something glorious. The end of his faith, he will call it, his salvation. And for Peter, this is something to anticipate. This is something to look forward to every single day. It should be something that we love and crave after, as we would love and crave after anything of this world. We're beginning a new series today, and we're going to carry it through for the next few months through the book of First Peter. And we are going to learn from this apostle of Jesus Christ who wrote, guided by the Holy Spirit of God, to a variety of churches, and he is going to remind us what you and I need to anticipate, what you and I need to look forward to in our spiritual lives. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. What are you looking forward to? First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 5 says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed 
in the last time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask right now a special blessing of your Spirit upon this time that your Spirit might illumine our eyes. It might penetrate our very souls that we might hear your Word, understand it, and apply it to our lives today. We pray that these beautiful truths Peter declares today would be something that we look forward to. In Christ's name, amen. Well, when you start a new book such as this, uh, I always want to give you a very good historical background to the book. You, you, need, you need that background. You need an understanding of what is the foundation of this book, who is writing, who are the recipients, wh- where is he going with this. So I want to ask a number of questions. The first question is this. When was First Peter written? When was First Peter written? The second question I want to ask is where did Peter compose the letter? Where did he compose this letter? And the third question, the third question that I would like to ask is, who were the intended recipients of the letter? Who were the intended recipients? So here we are, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All right, when is 1 Peter being written? When was it being written? 1 Peter very plainly, was written more or less around the year 64 A.D. 64 A.D. And that's showing up a little dark today. That's okay. We lost our background, but we'll be able to see it nevertheless. 64 A.D. And this was around the time of an emperor in Rome that you all are probably very familiar with. Emperor Nero. Who's heard of Emperor Nero? Okay, most of us have. Emperor Nero was one of the most ruthless emperors in all of the Roman Empire. He ruled from 54 to 68 A.D. And I wanted to share with you what one Roman historian wrote about the reign of Nero with respect to believers. This is what Tacitus wrote about Emperor Nero. He says this, He says, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. An immense multitude was convicted, covered with the skins of beasts they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired." Friends, this is the actual historical record of what Nero would do to believers. And believe it or not, he was probably on the scale of the worst of all emperors who persecuted the Christians. He was probably the third worst. There were others that did even more atrocious and abominable things to both Jews and Christians during the first and second century A.D. Peter is writing at a very, very difficult time in the world. To be a Christian, in particular, to be a Jew turned Christian, who who was Peter, was 
Well, in more or less words, it was somewhat of a death sentence. Either you would be persecuted in whatever town you arrived at, or you would be ultimately cast out or put to death. Peter is writing at the inception of this strong persecution from Emperor Nero. Some suggest he was writing right when Nero was burning Rome and blaming it on who? The Christians. Where did Peter compose the letter? Where did Peter compose 1 Peter? In 1 Peter 5.13, Peter suggests he is in Babylon. Now that's weird. Babylon, as you and I know, was an ancient civilization, an ancient city that persecuted the Israelites in the oh, 6, 7, 8th centuries B.C. Babylon seems to be quite a, an odd, a, a different kind of location for someone such as Peter to be in at a time such as this. What is he, why does he make such a statement? Is he literally in the town of Babylon? Well, there's some options here. One, either, yes, Peter is literally residing in Babylon, ancient Babylon, to the northeast of Jerusalem. Highly unlikely, but possible. Two, Peter could be wanting to warn believers that the coming persecution will be comparable to Israel's experience with Babylon. Perhaps he is saying that I am in Babylon so as to say we are all going to experience what the Jews experienced in the 6th century B.C. when Babylon took over. I am in Babylon. Maybe it was figurative. A third option is this. Perhaps Peter does not want to divulge his location in view of persecution and thus uses a code name Babylon as his current place of residence, which was most probably Rome itself. And this third option is what most uh, biblical scholars would argue for. A combination of the second and third, really. Peter, by using the term Babylon, is, is indicating that we're about to experience heavy persecution. Moreover, he doesn't want to divulge his location to other Roman rulers who are trying to squelch the Christian movement. And Peter is one of its leaders. And so he's doing this by, as a means of safety, as a means of caution. Who were the intended recipients of the letter? This is a very difficult question to answer. Not so much the location, because the location is given. But who were these kinds of people? Notice it says in, in verse 1, we see that it's written to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Pilgrims of the dispersion. A letter intended to be delivered on a large-scale circuit. In fact, I have a map for you. If you'll take a look, uh, there is a large-scale map of the... Uh, Middle Eastern world during that time period. Can we get it? There we are. It's coming up slowly but surely. It's a little dark. You know what? That's okay. Keep in mind that as you cannot see this map, <laughs> the location that, that Peter is writing to is uh, very similar to the location of the seven churches of Revelation, although it's more to the northeast of the seven churches of Revelation. It's in a place known as Asia Minor. 
extending a little bit northeast of Asia Minor. And it's, it's, it, it covers 300,000 square miles. These regions that Peter cites are very large regions, very large territories. It was meant to be a letter that was circulated, meant to be a letter that was taken from church to church to church, from region to region and region. Peter's writing not to one recipient by any means. He's, he's writing to a large group of people. What kind of people were they is the question. Some say he was writing to Messianic Jews, that is, Jews who had become Christians. Others say he was writing to Gentile Christians. Well, let's look at these options. First, some say that First Peter was written to a Messianic Jewish audience. Is that the case? Well, there's some evidence for that. First, we know that Peter was known as the apostle to the Jews. Galatians 2, verse 7 and 8, you see Paul indicating that he was appointed, Paul was appointed to go to the Gentiles. Whereas Peter was specifically appointed to go to the Jewish people. Number two, he uses the word dispersion at the onset of his letter. This is very similar to what James uses in James chapter 1, verse 1. James was writing to the dispersion of the twelve tribes of Israel. So the word dispersion there might give us an indication that he's writing to Messianic Jews. Three, the tradition of your fathers, he cites in verse 18 of chapter 1. Very unlikely that the Gentiles would have a tradition passed down by their fathers. Instead, that's a very, that's very Jewish terminology. Handed down from the patriarchs of old. Four, notice the terminology here. You'll recall it well from the Old Testament. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people. These kinds of phrases, very indicative of Old Testament language to describe the Jewish people. Five, known as sojourners and pilgrims. And six, they were to be honorable among the Gentiles, indicating a contrast. In other words, whoever Peter was writing to, he was saying, be honorable among the Gentiles, perhaps because they weren't Gentiles, or others would say perhaps because they didn't want to mimic the lifestyle of Gentiles. So that's some of the evidence as to why it might be written to the Messianic Jews. But there's, other, there's another side of the coin. Let's take a look at what some say is the, are the recipients of 1 Peter. And that is, is 1 Peter written to a Gentile Christian audience? One, the geographic locations mentioned in verse 1 are predominantly Gentile regions. Asia Minor is a Gentile region. It is not primarily a Jewish region. The vast majority of the population will be Gentile, non-Jewish. Two, Peter does not name people in the regions to which he writes, indicating he may not have had full knowledge of his audience. Now, what I mean by this, what I mean by this statement is this. If you look at the letters of Paul, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and so on, at the end of his letters, Paul is always explicit about naming individual people whom he knows. He says, greet this person. Oh, and greet this person. And give this person a holy kiss. And, and let this person know I send greetings to them. He lists name after name after name. Peter, at the end of his epistle, doesn't list anybody. 
Not one name. He lists people who are sending greetings, but he does not list one person to which the recipients of the letter are to greet someone else with. Therefore, Peter was probably writing to an audience that he knew very little about. He knew very little about. Three, why this could be written to Gentile Christians. It says in verse 14, to not conform yourselves to the former lusts. A very Gentile kind of phrase, specifically used by Paul, the former lusts. This was not used to refer to Jews, but rather to Gentiles. And four, and perhaps most prominently, notice what it says in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. It says, we used to walk in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. The Gentiles think it's strange that you do not run with them in this same flood of dissipation. And my question to you is this. Would the Jewish people ever have been described as a people group participating in those kinds of activities? The answer is no. The Jewish people, in particular the Pharisees, their religious leaders, were some of the most pious, outwardly, holy people that there were on the whole planet. The Jews prided themselves in holiness. To describe themselves as those who go into drinking parties and act with lewdness and so on and so on. To use these kinds of descriptions is not becoming of what the Jewish people were all about. And so, in response to this last 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 4, one theologian, J. Ramsey Michaels, says this. He says, Such words are scarcely intelligible in relation to a Jewish Christian audience. They describe how Jews as well as Christians regarded the Gentile world, not how Christians or anyone else ever regarded the Jews. The best explanation of the data is that 1 Peter was written primarily to Gentile Christians. I emphasize primarily to Gentile Christians in Asia Minor, but that the author, for his own reasons, has chosen to address them as if they were Jews. I agree with this assessment. In the end, you might say, well, why is this important? Well, it makes a difference. To know who Peter is speaking to changes the way you will approach the text. And I believe there is strong evidence that Peter was primarily writing to a Gentile audience. He happened to use a lot of Jewish terminology because as for Paul, so also for Peter, the Gentiles had been grafted into the family of God. No, they didn't inherit all of the physical promises that God had given to Israel, but they were a part of the one people of God as expressed in the epistle to the Ephesians. The one family of God, both Jew and Gentile. And so I would make the case that we, that Peter is writing to a Gentile audience primarily, also mixed in with some Jewish church members and leaders. And this is to be a generic letter to be used for the good and the benefit of all the churches in Asia Minor. That is some of the background. 
Now, if you don't like history, we're moving on. All right? Verse 1, let's go. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Verse 2, elect, he calls them, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Peter writes to this generic group of churches and he calls them to the elect strangers of the diaspora, literally in Greek, to the elect strangers of those who are scattered about. He calls them elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, it's important to note here that we're dealing with an introduction. Peter is not intending for us to pause so much in verse 2 and draw out the theological implications of election based on foreknowledge. Now, we will, for, for a moment here, discuss that, but this is an introduction, and we need to treat it as such. Peter is simply highlighting the fact that they have been elected by God based on the foreknowledge of God. Now, what does that mean, elected based on the foreknowledge of God? Election throughout the scriptures is used in a number of different ways. There is election unto salvation. There is election or choosing unto good works. There is election or choosing unto specific types of service. There is election or choosing unto a certain kind of inheritance. The scriptures speak of election in, in broad manners. In particular, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, the election that Peter speaks of is with respect to election unto obedience. Notice what he says in verse 2. To the elect, according to the foreknowledge, that is the predetermined choice of God, the Father, and what do they elect for? Notice this, three things. In sanctification of the Spirit. Two, for obedience. Three, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. This is an election that Peter recognizes in these churches. Peter is saying, you are chosen by God. God has predetermined. He has willfully chosen you unto Obedience unto purification, unto consecration. He has chosen you unto sanctification. He's not talking about our eternal salvation. That's a component of it. But in particular, Peter is noting to these churches that yes, you've been chosen by God to be eternally saved, but, but moreover, you've been chosen to be faithful. You've been chosen to be obedient, to be purified. Let's look at these terms here. The first, sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification can also be understood as consecration. It can be understood in the sense of cleansing by the Spirit, a sense of purification, if you will. In sanctification of the Spirit, 
for obedience, or literally, unto obedience. Obedience does not need much of a definition. In particular, if we were to define it a little bit further, we might say obedience unto the gospel, or obedience unto the truth, which is what Paul has in mind every time he uses obedience without an object. He says, you are to be obedient to the gospel, obedient to the truths of God. And three, for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The word sprinkling here, this particular word for sprinkling, is not very common in the scriptures. However, it is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 19. And it is used in that context to specifically define purifying, cleansing, making someone consecrated after they have become profane. In particular, it has to do with when the, when the Jews would touch something that had died, they needed to go through a, a kind of purification, a kind of sprinkling, so that they might be cleansed. And so the election that Peter cites in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, is not necessarily an election unto salvation, but an election unto obedience. You, churches of Asia Minor, Peter says, have been chosen by God to obey Him. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. A very common greeting. May grace and peace be yours, he says. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter is offering here a praise, an offer of praise to God the Father. He's saying, blessed be God the Father. Why is he blessed? Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for his abundant mercy. How is that abundant mercy expressed? It is expressed through his begetting of us unto a living hope by means of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying, I offer praise to God, the Father of Jesus Christ, in view of His mercy. In view of His mercy, I offer Him praise. And the particular expression of that mercy is that He has begotten us, He has borne us anew to a living hope. Now, he doesn't define what that hope is yet. As yet, it's still undefined in the text. If we stop at verse 3, we wouldn't know what he means by that hope. But we're going to go further. He says... I praise God who has shown mercy. He has shown mercy by bringing us to new life, to a living hope by means of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through the instrument, if you will, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This being born again, that's spoken of in verse 3, this, He has begotten us again, is a past tense. It's referring to something that's already been accomplished. God has born us again. He has begotten us again in the past. And He's begotten us in the past into a living hope. Now notice this, this uh, phrase, into a living hope. Um, we see there too a living hope. 
The preposition right in front of that is the Greek preposition, Greek preposition ace, which means literally into. We're going to see this again because he's going to clarify what that hope means in verses 4 and then again in verse 5. So keep in mind what is happening there when you see the words, he's begotten us to a living hope, that is, into a living hope by means of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is this hope? Let's go a little bit further in the text. Verse 4. He says this, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now it's unfortunate that we have a black screen here, but that's okay. The words in verse 3. He has begotten us again to a living hope. That is, into a living hope. In verse 4, it begins, literally, into an inheritance. Verse 4 is a continuation of what we're seeing in verse 3. This hope that we have been born into, don't quite know where Peter's going with it quite yet. What does he mean by this hope? Now he's going on to say in verse 4 that this hope is also an inheritance. They're one and the same. The hope is also the inheritance. And then he's going to say that it's also something else in verse 5. Hang tight. So the hope is also an inheritance. It is correct for us to equate these expressions. And he describes this inheritance. He describes this hope. Notice what Peter says about this hope, this inheritance. He uses three, three descriptions. One, it is incorruptible. That is to say it has... It is of no death, no decay. Two, it is undefiled. That is to say, it is morally pure. It is clean. Three, this hope, this inheritance, does not fade away. It's of a permanent, permanent nature. And then finally... Peter indicates that this hope is on reserve. He says this hope, this inheritance, is reserved in heaven for you. The Greek word reserved there means literally to keep, or to keep under guard, or to keep in custody, or to maintain. Peter is not so much suggesting that the quantity of our inheritance is kept on reserve, but rather he is suggesting that our inheritance, our hope, which is still undefined in the text, this hope, this inheritance is kept on reserve in heaven. Its very nature is a heavenly one. Its very nature is a heavenly one. Verse 5. Peter now is going to jump back to where he left off in verse 3. At the end of verse 3, Peter notes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us, us, again to a living hope. Now he's going to continue that theme. He has begotten us, verse 5, we who are kept by the power of God through faith 
for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay. Now we come to the definition of the hope of the inheritance. And we do it by means of grammar. In verse 3, there's a preposition in front of the word hope. It's the Greek preposition ace. We've been born into a living hope. Verse 3. Verse 4. There's a preposition in front of the word inheritance. It's the preposition ace. We've been born into an inheritance. In verse 4. One and the same. We jump to verse 5. And what do you think is sitting right before the word salvation in Greek? It's the preposition ace. We've been born into salvation. Hope, inheritance, salvation. Peter is led up to a climax, if you will. At first, making it rather vague that we have a hope, and he doesn't define it. He goes on to call it an inheritance. In fact, it's, it's a heavenly inheritance, one that will never fade away. And finally, in verse 5, he draws it out a little more fully, though we still need to explain what, it, what he quite means by it, and that is that it is salvation. The hope is also the inheritance, is also the salvation. He is equating these three terms. My question, and the question of, one of the main questions of 1 Peter is, what in the world does Peter mean by salvation in the book of 1 Peter? You might think it to be a rather interesting question. But you see, salvation is a term that has a wide variety of meanings in the New Testament. On the one hand, we who are evangelicals in the West, we hear the term salvation and we automatically want to think eternal salvation. Salvation from hell. I'm saved eternally. Yes, that is one way of defining the word soteria in Greek. Eternally saved. However, there are other ways of defining salvation. Salvation can also be literally physical deliverance. It can be deliverance from a disease. It can be deliverance from a shipwreck in the New Testament. It can be deliverance from a physical malady or deliverance from persecution. Salvation can also mean a different kind of components of our salvation. It could mean our justification. That is, when we were justified by faith in Christ, that was our salvation. It could also be referring to our sanctification, that we are saved by means of are conforming to the image of Christ by the Holy Spirit of God. Or salvation can also be referring to our glorification. That is to say, we are saved at the end of the days when Jesus Christ returns and reward and glorifies us with resurrected bodies and rewards those who have been faithful to Him. And so salvation has a variety of contexts in which we need to filter through as we read the New Testament. And 1 Peter is no different. I want to note a few things about what Peter means by salvation. First, this is very important. First, he describes it as a living hope. In chapter 1, verse 3. Now the mere mention of hope, the mere mention of the word hope, indicates that the kind of salvation Peter is concerned with is probably yet future. Let me say that again. Because of the word hope, it is proper for us 
to understand Peter's use of salvation as more than likely something that is yet to occur. It is something that he is hoping for. Not that he's wishing for it, but rather that he is anticipating it to be his. Two, how does Peter use the word salvation? He says in verse 5 that it is ready to be revealed in the last time. Oh, wait a minute, I thought I was saved when I expressed faith in Christ. Yes, you are saved when you express faith in Christ. But Peter's not talking about that kind of salvation in verse 5. He's talking about a kind of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He's not talking about justification here. Three, in verse 9, Peter notes this, that the salvation that Peter speaks of is realized at the end of your faith. Salvation that is realized, that is completed, that is accomplished at the end of your faith. So certainly again, Peter's not referring to justification as salvation. Note this. When Peter uses the word salvation, he is not merely referring to what is past. In fact, he's not referring to what is past in particular. That is justification. But to what is still future. To the believer's hope of glorification. Now, this is simplistic terms. Well, excuse me. These are big words. But this is a simplistic way of expressing the kind of salvation that Peter is trying to wrap our minds around. When Peter says the word salvation in chapter 1, he is not referring to the moment in time in which you and I express faith in Jesus Christ. Instead, Peter is drawing our eyes forward. He's drawing our attention to the future. What are you looking forward to, Peter is asking. What are you looking forward to? And the answer is, what is your glorification going to be like? What is your glorification in Jesus Christ? Your salvation glorification, what will that day be like? The day in which you are raised anew with a resurrection body. What will it be like when you are standing before the judgment seat of Christ, receiving the things done in the body? What will it be like when Jesus Christ assesses you, judges you, considers you, considers your faithfulness, considers your obedience? What will your glorification be like at that point in time? What are you looking forward to? Back to the text. Notice also in verse 5. He says, We who have been begotten by God are also kept. Notice the word kept. There's the Greek word for maybe protected or guarded. We are protected for final salvation or glorification by two things. This is very interesting. We are protected... For salvation glorification by two things, according to Peter. One, we are protected by the power of God that ensures our glorification. By the power of God, we are protected. But notice, two, 
We are also protected through faith. Not the faithfulness of God, not the faith of God, but literally through our faith. As you read on in 6 to 9, you'll notice that Peter here is talking about our faith. This begs the question, how does my faith, how does my faith also protect my salvation glorification? How does my faith, I understand that the power of God ensures my salvation glorification. My question is, how does my faith also protect my salvation glorification? I'm going to let that question linger because we're going to address that question next week. Right now, I would like to bring us to a time of application. We'll we'll look at that question in just a minute. I want to talk about how we can apply what we've learned here today. Now, this has been a very theological start to 1 Peter because it's a theological beginning to the book. Yet, there is something that we can grasp firmly from the very onset of this book. First, application. Christian, you have not only been elected unto eternal salvation, but you've been elected unto obedience and sanctification. Live worthy of the calling you have received. So often, we are concerned with only the justification side of salvation. And yet we've been called unto obedience, called unto sanctification, looking forward to the day of glorification. Are you living worthy of the calling that you have received? You are called unto obedience, elected unto obedience. Two, I urge you to commit to memory Peter's definition of salvation in the book of 1 Peter. Peter does not mean justification. Only once does he mean sanctification, but more often than not, Peter means the final end, the glorification component to our salvation. You need to keep that in mind as you come to the word salvation throughout this text. And I have some homework for you, if you so choose. If you're up for it, I would like this question to be looming throughout our week, because I think it is... An unusual question. There's a good answer for it. And the question is, if you read 1 Peter, I want you to answer this. How does my faith also protect my salvation glorification? How does my faith protect, guard, keep, secure my glorification in Christ? That is the question that we will be answering the next week. I would... Love to entertain some of your thoughts. You're welcome to email me or give me a call. We'll talk about this. In summary, God has given us new birth. The motive, the motive of this new birth is His great mercy that He's bestowed upon us through Jesus Christ. The result is a living hope, an inheritance, a salvation that can't be destroyed, defiled, or fade away. It will be kept in heaven for us. And we are being guarded in this hope. We are being guarded by the power of God. And we are being guarded somehow, some way, by our own faith for our salvation glorification. Where, what are you looking forward to? Are you anticipating something dramatic to occur in your spiritual life? Peter 
in the book of 1 Peter is going to urge us to make something dramatic happen in our walks with Jesus Christ. Let's consider what it would be like to seize hold of salvation glorification, to make it ours, to seize eternal life, to be filled with the Spirit of God, acting and speaking in the manner of Christ, that we might be God's ambassadors on this earth and receive salvation glorification as God fully intended for us to receive. Let's pray. Heavenly